Can you say that again, renal? You get two per day and then you have to start charging. <laughs> but, you know, when a study is this good, I will tattoo renal on my chest. Okay. That's, that's tweetable. <laughs> right, right on my arm, right here. Freely Filtered, the twice-a-month podcast that summarizes and pontificates on recent NEFJC journal clubs. NEFJC is the Twitter Nephrology Journal Club, where nephrologists meet in social space to discuss the research and developments that are driving nephrology forward. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to give medical advice. If you have questions about your health, we suggest that you talk with your doctor. This podcast may discuss off-label and unapproved medications, and this one very specifically will be discussing off-label indications. Hello, my name is Joel Toff, Kidney Boy on Twitter. Tonight we just have Matt and Swapnil and two special guests. Sue Quaggan, Professor of Medicine and President of the ASN. Sue? Hi, Joel. It's really great to be here. I have to say, it almost feels like I've been invited backstage at a rock concert with all of you guys. As Joel said, my name's Sue. I'm living in Chicago, but I'm a Canadian. And I'm very passionate about SGLT2 inhibitors and excited to be part of this. And Adira Levin. Professor of Medicine at the University of British Columbia and Chief of Nephrology at British Columbia. In addition, she's also head of the British Columbia Renal Agency. Hi, uh, my name is Adira Levin, and it's a pleasure to be here. I live in Vancouver, Canada, and have been uh, in nephrology here, learning, listening, and leading a number of different initiatives, uh, helping to make it better for people living with kidney disease. And we have the filtrate. Matt? Hi, everybody. This is Matt Sparks. I tweet at nephro underscore sparks. I love the renin angiotensin system. I can't stand baclofen. And I also love the word kidney. And Swapnil. Hey, everyone. I'm Swapnil Hiramat. I'm a nephrologist at the University of Ottawa, which is located in Canada. And I'm an epidemiologist there as well. I tweet at H Swapnil. I don't have any conflicts except that I'm a passionate flozinator. The RAS inhibition story is one of the great achievements in nephrology. These classes of blood pressure drugs was found to not only lower blood pressure, but to have dramatic effects on heart failure and both diabetic kidney disease and non-diabetic proteinuric kidney disease. Though there were many studies that defined this achievement, I think that most short histories will drill down to four principal studies. The Captopril Collaborative Group showing a decrease in death, dialysis, and doubling of creatinine with Captopril in type 1 diabetes. The VHEF2 trial showing improved survival in heart failure. And then the IDNT and Renal twins showing ARBs being effective in type 2 diabetes. There are additional trials that are important, but I think these four would be reported in any history of RAS blockade. And they were all recognized as major breakthroughs the moment they came out. These were no Van Goghs that died in obscurity only to become famous years later. They came out to much fanfare, and even now they are treated with reverence. Hell, the primary outcome of the study we're going to discuss today can trace its lineage right back to Ed Lewis's Captopril Collaborative Group. In 10 or 20 years, the SGLT2 story will likewise be complete. 
And I think today's trial will be among the trials that we will still be celebrating. The entire DAPA program, both DAPA CKD and DAPA CHF, are turning points in the history of SGLT2I. They are the studies that definitively let us drop the veil that these are diabetes drugs. The DAPA program aggressively recruited patients without diabetes to see if the dramatic results of credence could be replicated outside of diabetes. Both halves of the DAPA program were positive trials, showing dramatic improvements in heart failure in DAPA-CHF and dramatic improvements in proteinuric CKD in DAPA-CKD. We are here tonight to talk about the latter. We have got an all-star cast here. It is just amazing to have Dr. Quaggan join us. And it, it and wow. And DAPA-CKD. Woo. And DAPA-CKD. And that, that's, ex- that's exactly right. Okay, Swap Noel, go, go deep on methods. What do we got here? It's a randomized control trial. This was a very good randomized control trial. So, you know, we need not spend time talking about, you know, what was the method of randomization and what was whether the concealment allocation was well done and so on and so forth. So let's jump into the key aspects that I think we should all know. Listeners of uh, the FJC podcast will know that I always bitch about the funding and who wrote the paper and ghost writing. Well, surprise. Though this was a pharma-funded study, there is nothing like that here. So the trial was designed by an executive committee, which had nine academic members and two employees, but they were non-voting members, you know, completely legit. The the paper itself is written by the first author and the last author who wrote the first draft, you know, David Wheeler and Hedo Hirsping. It is not written by some ghost medical writer. And the decisions about the trial were all done by the academic authors and the investigators. You know, the sponsor did not have any say about when should the study be started or when should it be stopped? Everything is above board. It all checks out very nicely. For the study population itself, what Joel talked about, the key thing is that this was not just diabetic nephropathy. This was diabetic and non-diabetic nephropathy. For the GFR cutoff, so these were only type 2 diabetes. It were, they were adults, but they could be have a GFR anywhere from 25 to 75. And they had to have proteinuria, which was from a urine ACR of 200 to 5,000 to be eligible for participation. And it's important to note that that 25 is a new record, right? That's the lowest we've gone. Am I right in that one? That's the lowest we've gone in a... Except for Emperor Reduced, which went down to 20. Emperor Reduced, was that, a, was that just a sub-study of a, of a previously reported trial? No, or that, that? that was EMPA with um, heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, but they had secondary kidney out, okay. uh, endpoints. So they went so down to 20. They enrolled exactly. GFRs so, down to 20. So that's, okay, that's the record. That's the deepest we've gone in the Mariana Trench. And, and EMPA kidney will be down to 20. And the kidney, which is enro- still uh, I enrolled. think the enrollment is pretty well done, but yeah. uh, or, or very close to be done. But it's uh, uh, it should be finishing. Uh, I think it's supposed to be reported next year. Yeah. That's when they anticipate completing. I think 20, 2022, I think. Yeah. And, w- and one of the nice things about uh, this study is they capped the number of people with CKD stage exactly. two, right? They pretty early, it looked like they filled exactly. that, that so, tranche. So though the GFR in the, in the was study. 25 to 75, uh, in 2017, I think they realized that if, if they kept it that wide open, it would be all filled with low risk patients with high GFR. So they said, hey, only 10% have to be stage two between 60 and 75. So, so as to get more patients with uh, GFR less than 60. On the same note, it was also stratified such that you know, they didn't want just diabetic nephropathy or non-diabetic nephropathy. So at 30% had to be either uh, diabetic or non-diabetic nephropathy. And the other thing that we need to know here about stratification is that also the ACR. 
So they uh, had to have, you know, they tried to stratify. So they had equal number with ACR less than 1000 and more than 1000. So it wasn't skewed with extremely proteinuric or extremely non-proteinuric patients. So those were kind of the population things for the inclusion criteria. For the exclusion, right? Now that you have non-diabetic nephropathy, you want to make sure that you have the right population. So proteinuria was an inclusion, but they did exclude ADPKD in particular. And they excluded patients with lupus nephritis and with anca vasculitis. Those were the big three exclusions. Yeah. About ADPKD. This was my impression of it, maybe. So is that because animal studies have shown that the cysts enlarge with um, SGLT2 inhibitors? Or uh, is there actually human data suggesting this? What's the what's the deal with that? So I don't know for sure. My my thought was that the progression of kidney disease is slower. So Potentially, that's why they were. Yeah, exactly. That that was my impression as well. That, uh, hey, of course, they are not proteinuric. But I heard some animal models were giving the uh, rats with PKD SGLT2 inhibitors had a yeah. bigger cyst growth. So, Matt, you probably know animal studies. How how well do these drugs work in animals? I didn't think the SGLT2 inhibitor drugs really work as well in rodents. I know there's Is that a lot right? of. That the, that the animal models are did not really predict the the results we're seeing right now. Well, well, no, I I think just that we don't know if they work as well in rodents as they do in in patients. As far as even inhibiting the transporter, I don't know the answer to that. I thought Matt would. Yeah, because we do have really good <laughs> models of diabetic nephropathy, right? I, 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 in, in we are, this is a moment, right? We're having Sue Quaggan ask Matt about mice. It's That's, actually a rat. I just want to make that, sure it's a rat. Put it's that on the wall. <laughs> I said, I said rodents. <laughs> okay, yes. good. Yeah, that's true. Here's the paper right here. It looks like they gave DAPA, yep, to PKD rats, and they had increased in cyst volume. Is this just an uh, isolated study, or is it see, uh, see if Christos knows more about it? But I, and I would argue also that a drug that caused osmotic diuresis may stimulate ADH. And I think that would be a bad pathway to walk down in ADPKD. I think there'd be real questions about the safety of using these drugs here, just with what we know about uh, the influence yeah. of cysts. Yeah, absolutely. And people are extrapolating the, you know, the non-diabetic data into all sorts of population. But for sure, ADPKD is one where we would like to see strong data before uh, extrapolating there. But, but exactly, like these are low risk, right? One of the criticisms of the, say, MDRD study, uh, which was negative, is that, you know, there was a large chunk of ADPKD population in, in MDRD. And maybe that's why, you know, some people blame that on, on uh, it being negative, though, you know, of course, there are many other things. Uh, so the population, we are, you know, it's pretty straightforward. Uh, so one more thing about the fact that they excluded lupus and ankylovasculitis, but so patients with, say, FSGS or membranous or IgA nephropathy could go in but not if they had had recent immunosuppression. So in the last six months, if they got any immunosuppression, you know, so that's sort of an index that there is something active inflammatory going on, perhaps. So they, they would be excluded. All these people with IgA then on nothing then, no prednisone. Those doctors had read I, Stop IgA, probably went to the NFJC chat. <laughs> they are Stop IgA people. You know, I love going to that NDT paper and looking at those. I mean, I usually don't like pie charts, but this one's really cool. Wait, wait, hold on. Matt, what, what is this IDNP paper? Not NPG, NDT. That's the results. Come on, wait, wait, hold, hold on. 
Oh, oh, hey, he mentioned all these other okay. diseases, so I got excited. They excluded those, and, and after randomization, they got, you know, 10 milligram of DAPA or placebo. That's it. You know, it's very simple. There's no dose up titration. There's nothing. All had to be on ACE So, yes. So, they had to be on an ACE inhibitor or ARB, and, an ARB and they had to be on an optimal dose of ACE or ARB. So, uh, like, I think the point that George Bacris had made with the Fidelio was that it wasn't maximally tolerated. Like, they just had to be on ACE or ARB. And uh, unless they had documented intolerance, and as we shall see, because yeah, they really on Fidelio, made, you know, they made sure and titrated all everyone up to max dose. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That and that was not the case here, right? Which is just fine. I don't so think. So should that's we a, be doing that with the SGLT2 inhibitors before we start to make sure that they're titrated up? You know, I think there's going to be a lot of questions about combined therapies. I I don't think we have the answer. But, to- and I think what it's doing is making me realized that I wasn't as aggressive as I should have been on the ACE and ARB. But I mean, look look at the effect size so of SGLT2 inhibitors, right? I mean, it's- Just huge. go ahead and get them on it. And, and, and I, would, I would argue that these effect sizes come with patients not on maximized ACE and ARBs, just on kind of routine ACE and ARB use, you know, and they're, you know, they're conscious about getting them on it, but if they are intolerant, they don't stop them from ordering the SGLT2 and they still get the mm-hmm. pretty impressive effect. Absolutely. Uh, and the results, uh, so the outcomes are, uh, in this case, uh, the primary outcome was a composite, and it was sort of like uh, Joel alluded about the collaborative study. It was kidney failure, dialysis, uh, renal or uh, renal death, or um, not a doubling of creatinine, but a 50% decrease in GFR. So the doubling is 57% roughly. Uh, so this is pretty close. It's 50% uh, reduction in GFR. That was the primary outcome. But, but, but we're, we're all in agreement that this is like the no question this is a great primary outcome they're not they're not cutting corners here nobody has a problem with the fact they're not doubling the serum creatinine that a 50% decrease in gfr is cool we're yep. all in agreement there in fact even 40% decrease in gfr has been validated now uh, slope of gfr you know fda accepts even the gfr decline as as like albuminuria in certain conditions 50% is very good the secondary outcomes were all hierarchical so with hierarchical it means that you know if one outcome is not is negative, they will stop uh, uh, testing uh, for the p-values after that. You know, they had an independent data safety monitoring board. They had an independent uh, outcome adjudication committee, all completely above board, very legit. They looked at serious outcomes in particular. There were some outcomes that they looked at specifically, uh, amputations, uh, fractures, uh, diabetic ketoacidosis in particular, UTI, uh, specifically, they mentioned Fournier's gangrene, that whenever there was any event that was evaluated by an internal safety uh, group, uh, I guess because of the black box uh, that is there around that. It was interesting. That said that they specifically used the sponsors to evaluate the Fournier's gangrene, right? It's a weird, it's a weird sentence. All events suggested of Fournier's were evaluated by an internal safety group consisting of representatives of the sponsor who were unaware of trial group assignments. They had a special, you know, special victims, the SVU unit. <laughs> they came in pretty right. I mean, it's such gangrene. a you know, Fourier's gangrene that. is such a ghastly thing, right? I, I, I'm afraid of talking or mentioning I, it. I don't. But no, but swap. I'm totally agreement. When I put people on on FGLT2 inhibitors, I don't bring that up. That's too terrifying. Even if it's a one in a million, it's too terrifying to talk about. No one would agree to take that drug. 
the the analysis so a few things in the analysis i won't you know uh, i can see matt chomping at the bits to start with the results so i will i will try to make this brief i mean this is this is a person that dislikes statisticians dream but we'll get to that in a second yeah so so this was an event driven trial uh, they were looking at 680 primary outcome events with a 22% lower relative risk in the dapa group compared to the placebo group So you know they thought they would need 4300 patients and this would give them the 90% power which is again you know pretty straightforward uh with the, with assuming that the primary event rate is going to be 7.5% in the placebo group uh they had planned an interim analysis when 75% of the events were done but as the events were accruing they realized that you know uh, it, initially it was slow and then the events were coming up so fast that by the time 75% occurred it will be very close to the finish line so they decided to you know kibosh the interim analysis which is you know again it's it's nothing against them it's actually pretty good there's nothing uh, very exciting about it it's pretty clean straightforward and above board and we are finally done with methods does anybody have any questions or concerns about the methods is any when you read these methods is this top notch a1 study or did they cut any corners or any questions that you got anybody have adira No, I mean I think this is an example of a super clean randomized control trial in a large group of patients that will help to get you the answer that will help you guide care. So there's nothing tricky about this, there's nothing sneaky about what they've done. It's incredibly transparent. I'm in agreement. You know, I can't wait to announce these results. Let's talk about what how many people they enrolled in the study and how many uh they analyzed. So it's like they they got about 2100 patients in both groups the dapagliflozin and the placebo group and it was um 10 mg a day of dapagliflozin so first off on the demographics i think it's always important to look to see will this be like the patients that i see so you can apply this to your patient population so the average age was about 62 years old there was 32% female sex and of the racial categories that they mention here 52% were white about 4.8% were black in the dapagliflozin group, 4% placebo group, and then about 35% Asian. Um we look back to see sort of what is the estimated GFR for these two groups of patients the and it's about it's about 43. So, you know, I think that's a significant, you know, for 2000 patients, eGFR about 43 mean is is pretty good. The distribution is also important to look at here. And you see there's about maybe 300 patients that are less than 30. The group between 30 to 45, there's about 1000 patients in these groups. So, I think this is a, you know, this is representative of the patients that I'm seeing. The important thing about this trial that we've already mentioned is that it's not just diabetes and so about 67% of both groups had type 2 diabetes everything seemed to be uh pretty even between both groups the previous medications they they all had to be on either an ace or an arb so about 30% were on ace inhibitor and about 70% were on an arb if you want to look at the the pie graph I went go back to the ndt paper and to see like what types of kidney disease were represented in this population 58% had diabetic nephropathy and then what has been pointed out multiple times this is actually the largest clinical trial that in enrolled patients uh, with IgA nephropathy and 6.3% uh, of patients had IgA nephropathy and about 2.7% with FSGS and then about 16% what's it, what's the absolute number 300 something patients yeah, were yeah yeah so testing was yeah it's really important that number of IgA patients 
is larger than any other RCT with IgA. Testing didn't have that. Like, it's pretty impressive, right? Like, it's no mostly an indictment of the IgA research. <laughs> Right, that's then we're doing terrible on IGA. I mean, we start every lecture saying this is the most common cause of glomerulonephritis in the world. <laughs> and and the biggest study ever was a uh, was a subpopulation of uh, DAPA CKD. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, so let's get to the primary outcome. So we've looked at the the types of patients on here. We're really excited because this includes patients that don't have diabetic nephropathy because we already have the credence result. We know that's great. Uh, but what, what's happening with individuals that, that have kidney disease that's not from diabetes? So the primary outcome, first, we need to mention that the plan was to continue and tell you they had 681 outcomes. However, uh, the trial was stopped early on the basis of the Data Safety Monitoring Board uh, when 408 of the 681 expected outcomes occurred, basically because it was overwhelming efficacy, uh, really amazing. Uh, so the primary outcome Primary composite outcome occurred in 197 patients in the dipagliflozin group and 312 in the, in the placebo group. So that's really quite impressive, which gives a hazard ratio of 0.61, very, very low p-value. Uh, so uh, I mean, that, that's an incredible result. And we're going to dig a little deeper uh, to look beyond that and um, look at the secondary outcomes. And so uh, the secondary outcome, which Swap mentioned, uh, with the renal specific composite outcomes, and this also reached. So, so, sorry, you said renal yeah. specific outcomes. Yeah, yeah, I'm reading off what the authors say. I don't endorse it or condone it, uh, but you know that's what they wrote. So yeah. p value again less than 0.01, hazard ratio 0.56. Wow, amazing. So uh, the secondary composite outcomes. Let's let's drill even further down here and look at these in detail. So first was our greater than 50% decline in EGFR. That was also a, a significant finding and occurred in 112 in the dipagliflozin group and 210, so almost 50% less. Pretty impressive in stage kidney disease. And that was also significant. If you look at long-term dialysis, 68 in the, in the flozin, what is called a flozin group, and then 99 in the placebo. So that's, that's, that's a really hard outcome. Three patients got transplanted and eight in the placebo group. And then what about the secondary outcomes that might be of interest? Um, and so they have composite outcomes of uh, estimated EGFR decline, kidney disease, or death from renal cause, and that was also significant. So really, it's like every single outcome was significant. There's some other things that we're also interested in. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard to look past death from any yeah. cause. Death from any cause, also significant. <laughs> Amazing. Adira, what do you got? I want to also point out, and maybe you're going to get to this, Matt. So yes. I might be out of line. Go ahead. The curves separate at 12 months. Yes, that's important for every outcome. And for the hospitalization for heart failure, they separated eight months. And I think that that's something that perhaps isn't always appreciated. Like you don't have to be on this drug for a long time to see the effect, like to find an effect that occurs in a chronic disease and is evident at 12 months. That's impressive. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. And I, I mean, I guess all of you guys know that it received breakthrough status at FDA in October. That's unheard of for a chronic disease. 
So Sue, what, what does that what what does that mean? Breakthrough. What does that what does that mean for us? So so FDA gives breakthrough status to certain drugs to um, expedite their approval for indications. So most of the drug, all of the other drugs, if you look through 2020, were for rare cancers, orphan diseases, but DAPA got it for so CKD. It's huge. Yeah, for it's CKD. huge. I mean that that's like unheard of, right? So that just shows you like this is. Yeah, once in a lifetime type of yeah, and I guess and the fact that I mean not to take anything away from DAPA, but across the class, this is a superimposable result. Like every single drug separates at twelve months, and that is again like such a consistent result with a biology that's so complex. Impressive for one agent. Right, right, and so and, and so, good examples to compare it to is like a, a blood pressure change. We don't see results before two years, and uh, controlling A one C is like five or seven years down the line. If you're going to get right. any effect, that's the thing to recognize right. these drugs is though all those parameters that we always preach on A one C blood pressure. Uh, it doesn't affect it that much, but has this profound effect in uh, really important in outcomes, which are death, uh, cardiovascular disease, heart failure, kidney failure. So how do we explain and that? Also, I mean, just to add to that point, in, and this is fixed dose with no target A1C, no target blood pressure, no target reduction. So this is like plug and play. Give them the medicine and walk away and you don't have to titrate and up titrate and fiddle and faddle. And I think that that's something that, for all nephrologists, we go back and think like, you know, this is a complex biology. Trying to target a single number and think you're going to get a result, like good luck with that. But target the physiology and you'll get it right. And that's a really good lesson for us, I think, because no one fiddled with this. It was fixed dose. Impressive. All the studies that's are fixed. Easy. Yeah. Easy. I think that's one thing we, when, we, when we talk about ACE inhibitors, ARBs, we think about the dose, the titrate, and which one. And, and that's why I think we're going to just simplify it and say, you know, just use this dose, whatever you can get your hands on and give it to them, uh, which is great. Well, and, and I think there's some lessons there because uh, EMPA reg had randomized patients to two different doses and there was no dose effect right. at all, right? Both doses worked, worked the same. Right. Well, that was in the early days, right? It was before they knew that. Exactly. That's exactly. The first like one, the right? renal first outcomes one. in the main paper of Empireg, they don't even talk about the kidney outcomes as primary, secondary, or tertiary. You know, it was it was like, hey, oh wow, what did we see there? I mean, it's a cardiovascular safety trial. Is the reason that we have Empireg, right? Which is the most amazing thing about this whole class of drugs. Yeah, uh, Matt, the subgroup analysis, the primary outcome. I, you know, I think this is something that I'd like to look at because, uh, especially for this trial, because we have patients with and without diabetes. And that's something that we're really you know, interested in is what, like, what is going on with the patients without diabetes. That's the first thing I'm going to. The first thing though, you know, for, this is a podcast, so you can't see this, but you know, when you look at uh, their hazard ratio on, on, a, on a subgroup analysis and, you, and none of them hit one, I mean, one abuts one, but pretty much all of them are, are really on the left, favoring to pack flows. And that's, that's quite impressive. Just to reemphasize what Matt says, this is the, the forest plot or the sensitivity analysis where they go through all the sub, subgroups and no study is ever powered to get the subgroups to have significance. Yet this one across the board, I don't know, there's a two dozen subgroups that they analyzed from geographic region to race, to gender, to age, and all of them are significant. It really is super impressive. And- and so, uh, you know, you look with and without diabetes and both of them uh, favor to paglifosin. And the interesting thing is that uh, maybe even without diabetes was even better. 
I, it, the confidence intervals are, are, are larger, um, but it's a smaller group of patients. But that, to me, is a really impressive finding. The other one I think we need to look at closely is uh, plus or minus one gram of albuminuria. And, and you know, and as Joel mentioned in the intro, albuminuria was an, is an important marker of if RAS inhibition will work. And so you have greater than a gram or less than the gram, and both of those seem to have the exact same effect in the primary outcome in DAPA-CKD. So Matt, EMPA kidney is going to be enrolling patients without proteinuria or is enrolling patients, right? They're enrolling people without proteinuria and without diabetes. Part of me feels like there's no levers to pull. Right. I don't know what, when those patients come to me, I don't know what to do for them. And that's one of the do, reasons do that think- that was, those are the people for who you have nothing. And so we can show that this class of agents works in non-proteinuric kidney disease if GFR is as low as 20 is getting enrolled into EMPA kidney, starting at 20. So that's going to give you a whole nother armamentarium if it, if it goes the way of everything else. And I think the other thing, when you look at these, this, um, this force plot is you notice that the effect is larger the lower your blood pressure when you started, which is again rocks your boat. I know about it's like the, the things the that we did not think was true is like, so oh. right? Yeah, that like is like it works even better if you don't have high blood pressure. Really, else really impressive. Subgroups that I missed, but th- those are the big ones there: blood pressure, albuminuria, uh, GFR groups, high, low, and diabetes—all significant. So what about the adverse events? I'm sure there were more adverse events, right, with DAPA? You know, we cannot have a trial of, of Flozins and not have figure three, uh, which is the least square means made GFR. It's the dip. And so uh, what, what they do is they look at the, the GFR change uh, since they started, months since randomization. And so the, the paglifosin drops four and the placebo just, you know, stays up, goes down just stepwise. But over time, the flozin group just sort of stabilizes out. And that, that's just, I can just look at these all day. Really impressive that a drug that creates a drop in GFR in the short term has long-term uh, protection. And that, that's been seen uh, yeah. And yeah. what I think is also good from an implementation perspective is that we know that ACE inhibitors do this too. And we get all hysterical and we go and order blood work at two weeks to make sure that the potassium isn't up. Since this doesn't impact, no one has to check nothing for at least four weeks, right? So that's really nice. And by that time, it's come up a bit, right? And then everyone's hysteria can go away. So I've been, when I start people, I actually don't do blood work for a month. And I tell them that there's no reason to. And I think that that also for ease of implementation is also an important message. So they they calculated the average loss of GFR and they did one calculation just from beginning of the beginning of study to the end of the study. But that's not nearly as interesting as the second calculation, which says, let's ignore the first, I think it was two weeks, and then let's calculate it from there. And the loss of GFR there was 0.82 milliliters per minute per year, which to me is just how much you lose. I mean, in 60-year-olds, that's what you lose per year just, by having just a for, from aging, just by having a right, from having a birthday. That's exactly right. Like, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's amazing. Joel, it depends on, on where you had your birthday party, I think. Yeah. So I want to follow up on Adira's point about implementation, because I think everybody agrees this is absolutely amazing. This class of drugs is going to transform managing patients with kidney disease with and without diabetes. So how are we going to do better, Matt, than ACEs and ARBs, right? So if you look 
you know, in, in groups, about 25% of patients who should be on them are on them. So, you know, I think that's uh, the big question. And if you do some back of the envelope calculations, you know, if you start these drugs in patients who, you know, fit the criteria for these studies, you could save, you know, hundreds of thousands of lives over a short period of time in the United States alone. So, and I love Adira has this fabulous extrapolated, you know, how many years you can keep someone off dialysis. I think for the average credence patient, it was 15 years, right? So like, and I think Sue's right. I think that the other thing that keeps coming up is like all of these studies were done with the assumption that everyone was on an ACE or well, with making sure they were on ACE and ARB. We know in the real world that they're not. I would hate for us to get hung up and say that people must be on an ACE or an ARB in order for you to start this drug, because that would be not quite the right. I've heard pharmacies say that. So there are the original studies, and David Cherney did some of these, you get the same effect off ACE and ARB. And there's actually a nice meta-analysis in The Lancet done by Brendan Smythe that actually says, like, whether you're on an ACE or an ARB, you get the same impact. Sorry, but by uh, Brendan Newen, you get the same impact. So yes, it's wonderful, but I'm also of the mind that since ACEs and ARBs seem to be more difficult to use and people are reticent, you know, maybe what we need to do is push these drugs irrespective of what else you're on. Now that would be a bit heretic. Maybe we need to think about simplifying and not making people have to be on everything before you start this, because I think that that will make implementation harder. Yeah, let's try to reduce any friction, right? Every opportunity is to start flozens. In the top 20 uh, drugs that are prescribed in the U.S., a number of prescriptions, um, lisinopril and losartan are in that group. How long do you think it's going to... They're both in the top 10. uh, Top 10? How long do you think it'll be until we have uh, flows in there? I think it's partly the coverage as well, right? It's it's about uh, how cheap it is, whether your insurance program covers it and all that. Well, I'm just saying, what is our goal? We have a goal of 100 days to get 100 million vaccine, vaccines. What's our, do we have a goal like I that? talk to Canadians about vaccination, please. Do <laughs> <laughs> That'd be a cool thing to have. No, but Matt, you're right. I mean, the urgency is the same, right? It is because every day we wait, some is you know progressing on towards kidney failure or it's just it's just as important so i have noticed a pretty significant difference in the last year this drug becoming much more available from insurance companies, like the, uh, at least one of the flozins being available to patients that, you know, if, uh, a year ago when I was prescribing it, I ran in a lot, into a lot more friction and that has notably dropped in the last year. But it's still not gone away. Not yeah, gone away. And no. the co-pays. And, yeah. So it's going to require a whole, you know, policy issues. It's going to require payers. So this is where I'll put a plug in for the Diabetic Kidney Disease Collaborative at ASN. So that's, it's, a task force that's, you know, geared to getting these drugs out to the patients who need them. So what do you do specifically on this task force? So, well, Kathy Tuttle's the chair, David Cherney, the co-chair, there's patient voices, but it's, uh, you you can check it out on the ASN website. Uh, They meet about every week. They've had um, stakeholder meetings with other um, subspecialty uh, groups and primary care folks met you know, talked with HHS, FDA, roundtables. Um, so it's a big lift, but, you know. Are they talking with payers? Because to me, that's the, that yes, right absolutely. now, that's the friction. 
Absolutely. Talking with payers, there's a lot, I can tell you, there's lots of interest at the federal government to, you know, they know this, they know. And if you look at the cost of, you know, kidney care, this makes sense, right? So it's, if you can just do back of the envelope, easy math. So that one year of dialysis with round numbers is $100,000. For round numbers, the cost of the Flozins for a year is $1,000. So you can do the math to figure out how many people you'd have to treat just to, for, with um, a Flozin to actually save one dialysis. So that's a huge savings to the healthcare system. And whether you're in Canada where it's publicly funded or whether you're in the States, yes, it's Medicare, but like Medicare should therefore fund this because it's a lot cheaper than funding all the dialysis. We need to stop paying for failure, right? This is the whole idea. We need to start treating patients upstream and prevent the dialysis. And I think the other thing that has come up is in COVID times, where keeping people outside of hospitals is important. If you look at the reduction in number of hospitalizations for heart failure, that's another big denominator that will save the system a lot of money. Every morning, we should all wake up, look at ourselves in the mirror and look and say, are you a Flozinator? (laughs) <laughs> we still have more results uh, and this is still this is a really important uh, area and I, we, yeah, we shouldn't skip it over the most important yeah. one I mean this is safety yeah and I think this is really important for a couple of reasons but one is that you know uh, these were first touted as diabetes medications and I think what we're quickly finding out is they're really not um, these are really uh, anti, you know, cardiovascular, they're pro-kidney uh, drugs. Like people were saying, wait, you're going to give this to someone without diabetes? <laughs> What's going to happen to them? And and really what the amazing thing about the safety is that these were extremely safe. And, and in fact, uh, there were, were more uh, serious adverse events in the, in the placebo group than the dipagliflozin group. And so that's... Uh, that. <laughs> That in of itself is amazing, and so like amputations was something that was 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 uh, was out there, and uh, there was uh, more amputations in the placebo group uh, than the dipagliflozin group. That's something that over the summer, remember, canagliflozin had that signal in Canvas for amputations, and over the summer they removed that black box. I think it was August or July, you know, in the middle of like COVID craziness, it's something you could have missed, but that's gone now. So hypoglycemia is something that. Uh, we were concerned about as well, especially given that these are patients that did not have diabetes. And so that that was de- not a signal that was seen and no one without diabetes had hypoglycemia. Uh, in fact, there's more patients in the placebo group with hypoglycemia than in the pagliflozin group. Um, the one uh, that was significant uh, was volume depletion and there was more, but it was small, 127 events out of 2,000 patients uh, in the dipagliflozin group and 90 in the placebo group. The other thing to note uh, and that we were concerned about is urinary tract infections, uh, no difference in both of the uh, groups. Uh, and then DKA. Right. And that's been a consistent, and that's been a consistent that signal, study after study. That I always UTI. UTI is not, like, I think there is a is not a thing. My, like yeah. mycotic genital infections and UTI. And somehow, because we're nephrologists, we got it mixed up and we thought they were the same. I'm not quite sure what the problem is there, but they're completely different and they are not, not even the same mechanism. So they have nothing to do with each other. And there is no UTI signal. No UTI signal. And also in this study, in study after there's study, no genital mycotic uh, mycotic infection signal either. And Matt, you're going to point out 
that the absolute risk is tiny. Oh, really? What was what was the number on the on the mycotic infections? Uh, well, I mean, it's it was so small. Like there's like maybe one zero and less than yes, really, really none. So, so the relative risk is high because yeah, yes, the relative risk is high. The absolute risk is low. And remember, it's a treatable thing. And then the other one that the, I think the probably the biggest overall thing about how tolerable the drugs are is you look at how many people were able to finish the study still on drugs and more people quit the placebo than quit than quit the DAPA. That's incredible. I mean, you know, you never see that in an interventional trial. I, I question what they were using for placebo. You know, Maybe it doesn't end was- <laughs> <laughs> there's something there's something fishy going on with that, this, that placebo this is a, uh, right non-statistician's dream uh and i don't yeah. think when you, you, you don't need a statistician exactly right. you don't yeah. need to go to this exactly you don't need a stats i was the third i was the third review last thing dka <laughs> and you know and you know there was actually none in the, the paclofosin group uh and two in the placebo so i mean this is for yeah and that's been know, and that's interesting because that's been a consistent signal in all the RCTs. None of the RCTs have been able to show this uh, euglycemic DKA that I think is a real thing. I've seen a case of it, and I, but I really believe it's because we're they're doing a really good job of removing type ones. Right, but we learned that that to remind people not to stop their insulin because I mean that's the only reason they get DKA is because their sugars are so good they stop their insulin. There's always an intercurrent event like there's no DKA in any of the studies that was spontaneous. It was all in association with an intercurrent event. Yeah, and Adira, comment on sick day. It's a sick day med too, right? Just stop it when you're sick. If you if you go to uh, nefjc.com and search DAPA CKD and scroll down to um, a figure that basically shows the heat map of where the patients are, and I think that's a something I always like to look at. And and the cool is the figure it circles or, or a little square around where the patients fit in all the major clinical trials we've we've mentioned: Credence, DAPA, CKD, uh, and then also where they are going to be or in in an impa kidney. And and this this is a. Uh, a very, uh, this is the patients that are very at risk for, for progressing to kidney disease, uh, much more than Impareg, much more than Canvas, and actually maybe just a touch uh, more than 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 Credence. Lower GFR yep. Yep. and higher proteinuria, mm-hmm. right? And so I, I would say for the for the viewers, go to that, to that and look at it. Uh, I think it's really instructive. So the other thing to maybe point out or emphasize is that even when these people crossed the threshold of 25, which was the entry criteria, they made, they were maintained on drug. So there was no stopping of drug when you ended up cr- like falling, right? And they went, took them all the way to dialysis. It's such, Same. A, such a hard thing for nephrologists. You're like, got to stop it, you know, because we're like, we kind of like look at everything as if it was an ACE or an R, but you know, it's like, right. <laughs> and, and so in this case, you just, you need to just keep the course, say the course. Right. And so the, the, yeah, the reason there was a lower limit for GFR was the thought initially was that the drug wouldn't be effective if you didn't have enough GFR to get glucosuria, right? And that's turned out to be not And, and just to belabor the point, like in Credence, in this drug, in this study, the drugs weren't stopped when the GFR fell to less than 20. You know? and, and that's different than Credence? It is very similar to Credence. They, similar to Credence. Okay. But important, and I guess the whole point about you don't get hypoglycemic because if you don't, if you've got an ambient normal glucose, it doesn't work. It's the mechanism is not dependent on glycosuria. So 
it works independent of serum glucose. And, and that is something that we're finding out as time goes on, or is that something predicted back when, you know, Flozen were sure first? this all along, all the study, he knew it all along. Because this was predicted all along. Yes, yeah, because, yeah. The lower your GFR, uh, the less glucose. Right, but I thought that the as far as like when this the earlier studies were done on on uh, like uh, the flow like the flozins, it was all TGF and and so I, I'm just curious. When do we start shifting our mindset to think like maybe TGF isn't as big of a deal in the mechanism? It's a Susan Quagan question. No, that well, it's a great question, Matt. So TGF is important, but there is. Uh, you know, likely other interesting mechanisms. And, um, but it wasn't predicted that, you know, 20, 30 years ago. I think it's part, I think it's part of the mechanism is TGF, but it's not the whole story. Well, totally. Yeah. I mean, if, you, if it's happening in patients without diabetes, then, you know. Yeah. I mean, there was this paper where they called it a review paper, I think, in Lancet, where um, uh, it was called as the beta blocker of the kidney, right? Maybe it decreases the energy consumption by the tubules or something. It's, it's energy consumption from oxygen uh, dependent to non-oxygen dependent and so part of the mechanism is thought to be use of keto acids so how many how many of you saw maybe just that in jci insight the the mice that lack sglt2 live longer if they're males so it's a longevity same way without the at1 receptor too so we have sweet pea mice in the in the lab we've had them for a while they've got a point mutation. And yeah, we're doing some single cell RNA-seq on the kidneys at baseline. And there's some very cool differences in the in individual cell populations at baseline. I think it's a cool story. Lots and lots of discovery. Uh, what about patients with kidney transplants? So there are case studies, case series that actually describe that they can, you use them and nothing bad happens but they haven't gone for long enough. So there is no safety signal, which would be the first thing that people are nervous about. But if you think about the failing grafts, why would this not be an ideal drug for failing grafts? Yeah. And so I guess the, the, the issue that they're concerned about is the infection potential. Uh, it, but um, The case series to date haven't shown that, but that's all they are is case is series. Is there any plans to have a larger study? I think so. Okay, that's great. And then we have a very safe drug, Really just, I mean, this is blockbuster sort of results. We're now in diabetic kidney disease. We ventured into non-diabetic kidney disease. We could be into uh, non-proteinuric, non-diabetic kidney disease. Amazing. Yeah, that's that, and, that's yeah, the next study. And we'll potentially see others. And one of, I think one of the other interesting aspects of this study is if you looked at the first wave, the first wave of SGLT2 inhibitor studies, these were all the cardiovascular safety trials that were required by the FDA. And for dipagliflozin, it was, uh, what was it called? It was Timmy 58. Yeah, declare. Uh, yeah. declare Timmy 58. Declare Timmy 58. And of all the SGLT2, was it looked like the lousiest one, right? It did. It really. It didn't hit its mortality benefit. It did hit its, its composite outcome, but not. Not. It didn't look like canagliflozin or empagliflozin. Yet when they change, and that was also it was the largest of all of them. It was like seventeen thousand patients. It was actually a huge study. But then when they focused down and did the DAPA CHF and the DAPA CKD, uh, CKD, it knocks it out of the park. Yeah. And, and, you know, initially when uh, Declare came out, Christos, uh, Argyropoulos and others were saying, hey, this is a, not a 
class effect. It's a drug effect. But, you know, with especially with DAPA, CKD and DAPA, IHF. Right. It looked like the bay call right. of statins, yeah. right? It was yeah. like the worst yeah. But it, it, it came back very nicely. Yeah. I don't think anyone knows what bay call is, Joel. <laughs> this beard is gray for a reason. I am old. <laughs> also, like, we haven't talked about scored, right? Like the just came out in New England Journal like last week, right? Now tell me about scored. What's the story? So ten thousand people randomized to sodiclofloxacin. Yet another flozin with uh, cardiac disease and impaired kidney function and diabetes, with again a, a positive signal for. Um, for improvement in cardiovascular events. Kidney was not a primary um, part of the study, but the people in it, and I have to go back and look exactly, but um, they did have a fair number of people with impaired kidney function. Swap, you might have it at your fingertips a little bit better than I do, but. This is one that's a combined SGLT1 inhibitor. Uh, yeah, it's a one and. Oh, it's a one and a two. It has a hit of uh, diarrhea as well. Canna is a, is a one and a two as well, right? Canna has some one effect, yeah. And the thing with SCORED was uh, it had a benefit in HEFPEF, uh, which has not been shown by any other drug ever. Uh, so. That's the second time HEFPEF's ever been mentioned on this podcast. Wait a minute. Wait, hold, hold on. Hold on. I thought, I thought top, top Cat also showed... Well, if you were, crazy cardiology also showed spire. No, 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 no. No, Top Cat, if you remove the falsified Russian data, I thought it was a positive trial for Spiro in, in HEFPEF. But you have to remove that Russian data. <laughs> you, have to, you have to get rid of the Russian data. <laughs> That's never a good thing. Okay, I just just for the listeners, uh, Top Cat, if you look it up in any jam, is a negative trial. But then we later found out that the people in Russia weren't even getting study drug. It was all being, I don't know what they were doing with the Spiro, but they weren't getting it. And when you remove those patients, it is a positive trial. So use your Spiro in your HEFBEF. I say, what's flozinate? Let's flozinate. Is, uh, yeah, that's right. Much better to flozinate than to put them on Spiro. Uh, are, is there anything else we want to talk about DAPA? Are we done with DAPA? We, we, we're saying this is a major breakthrough trial. This trial is going to be, in my, my opening statement, I said, this is the trial that is going to be remembered as one of the breakthrough important trials in the history of SGLT2 inhibitors. Was I right there? Or is this going to be just an ulcerand? No, you're right. You're right. We just have to get it to patients now. Yeah, and I think yeah, and I think that if one looks at the totality of data, and you take EMPA, Credence, DAPA, and then EMPA kidney, you will have the entire spectrum of kidney disease. Yeah. So the next we're waiting on EMPA kidney. That's going to be a big one. And Absolutely. Yeah, it's just, uh, and they've got about. And type one and transplants. The other thing um, that comes up that's a question that I've heard asked is, you know, what about um, maintenance of GFR in peritoneal dialysis patients once they're on PD, right? Like where residual renal function is super important. Like, might this be another thing that we can think about? And what about just leaving the dialysis patients on it because maybe it's good for your heart? Who cares if you don't have the kidneys to protect anymore and you made it to dialysis, but maybe just like we don't stop ACEs, we keep them on these because it's actually good for the heart. So there's like, it's still unanswered questions. Like we're not done yet with a, with a, you know, a class of drugs that appears to be disease modifying for cardiac and renal. Outstanding, outstanding stuff. Oh, this is great. This is great. Tubular secretion. We're going to do... We're going to do our tubular. We're going to do our tubular secretions. So this is um, 
an opportunity to talk about things that are interesting. Uh, Swap, you got a tubular secretion? Sure. So, you know, everyone's getting tired of Zoom and webinar and stuff, but I think there are some really nice conferences coming up, uh, which are cool. And, and, you know, the reason to mention them is that many of them have, you know, either they're free or, or they're really discounted for trainees. So, uh, in April, for example, uh, it's like three conferences right after the other. You've got the NKF Spring Clinicals from April 6 to 10, uh, which is free for trainees. Uh, you have the I'm a Hypertension guy. So there is the International Society of Hypertension, uh, European Society of Hypertension, uh, which is free if you're less than 35 years of age. And right after that is the World Congress of Nephrology in Montreal, or, you know, sort of in Montreal. Uh, <laughs> in Montreal. <laughs> I like how these conferences still say where they're, where they're at, you know, it's like... Oh my God! How much would I love to be going to Montreal for the World Congress? That sounds I will, so I will be awesome. There in in my on my Zoom. Yeah, and 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 if you are you know, uh, and you can get free Canadian Society of Nephrology membership uh, if you sign up for the World Congress and, and want to be a member. That's a that's a bargain. Yeah. Do you all give hockey pucks out Excellent. for uh, swag? So speaking, kind of working on that Zoom, we just set up. Uh, we're trying to get you know lectures for our fellows, and we're going to have Sharon Moe is giving a lecture to her her fellows in Indiana, and we're just going to log in and be able to watch the same lecture. It's pretty cool. You get a chance to have Sharon Moe talk about calcium phosphorus. That's awesome, right? That's phenomenal. Matt, what do you got? Okay, so first, Neff Madness is going to come March first. Yes. Please, uh, this is going to be just a celebration of everything good in nephrology. So uh, get your uh, party started. You know. Uh, on the schedule, uh, it's going to be really fun. So definitely Neff Madness all of March. You can you can put in your uh, bracket because that's the first thing. I, I I promised I would give a plug to a new podcast called Checkpoint Now, and this is a podcast that discusses the toxicity of checkpoint inhibitors, which obviously in nephrology, we see a lot too. They cause interstitial nephritis. They can also cause an RTA. And so this is a really cool podcast and I and told them I'd give them a, a shout out. And, and the last thing I want to talk about is a new app I have on my phone. And it's been really just a revolutionary thing for me to, and it's called uh, Bazart, B-A-Z-A-A-R-T. And what you can do is, uh, is take a picture of a person and then just click one button and it turns it into a transparent PNG file. So basically the person is there and the background is gone. And so this is really important for the Bernie meme. Okay. And so you can basically <laughs> make anyone into a Bernie meme. And, and so if you look at when we announced the class of the Nephrology Social Media Collective Internship, I did it for every single um, intern that got accepted to the program and put them all on a blue background. It just looked really cool. And so now my kids uh, are have gone to India. All the fellows took a trip to Paris. I mean, it's been an incredible journey that we're all on. So that's that's my uh, tubular secretion. Uh, uh, Suze, do you have anything you want to promote? Uh, well, yeah. Although I do want to ask Matt about the shark versus camel from Neff Madness. I still have not gotten Yes. That. Well, you, Animal House was, was huge. And Animal House will never be forgotten. I still, it was the I greatest, still do not agree, though. It was the yeah. greatest Neff Madness region ever. I don't know how we could ever do better than Animal House. Matt, do you agree? I totally agree with you. Greatest the BUN of a, a shark is what, Swapno? Uh, which one? The Greenland shark? It's, it's made of urea. It's, it's, it's full of urea. It's just a big ball of urea. urea. Yeah, so okay, go ahead, Sue. Okay, yeah. Anyway, I didn't agree with the pick on that one, but 
Anyways, um, yeah, I would love to shamelessly promote the 850 challenge. So um, started this 1201 on January 1st. Uh, trying to raise awareness for the 850 million people living with kidney diseases worldwide. So if you want to do anything around the number 850, check it out on uh, Twitter. And it can be 850 miles. That's what I'm doing running uh, this year. But it can be 850 jigsaw puzzle. My 89-year-old dad did that. Uh, so you can do anything. And it's all, uh, you know, for a good Good cause. Tell, tell us how, how you thought of this and what's the origin of the challenge? I'm, I'm forever thinking about how to raise awareness. You can ask my kids and every cab driver, every person who'll ever listen to me. I'm always talking about kidney disease and how underappreciated it is. And, uh, you know, one in three people in the U.S. are at risk and about 90 percent of people with kidney disease have no idea they've got it. So, you know, we, we've got to do something about it. So that's how it started. It started New Year's Eve. I was talking to my husband and yeah. And I think I that dovetails with this this topic so well. It's like part of the reason we need to get people to be aware that they have kidney disease is we are, we're in this revolution of wildly effective therapies, right? The reason you need to know about it is we can do something about it. I want to personally thank you for being first the face of our entire field and being so just visible that I think a lot of trainees, a lot of individuals that are considering going to nephrology can really relate to you. They see you on Twitter, uh, really pushing people to get out and exercise. And, and so I think that is a really incredible thing. And thank you for, for all that, all that you do. Aw, aw, thanks, Matt. <laughs> you, got, you guys are way out there on Twitter. You, you taught me. I think Swapnil taught me how to argue, you know, argue probably. An image, <laughs> turn me from an egg. <laughs> An egg image on my Twitter. Yeah. Adira, you got anything? You know what? I think they, there is a really cool opportunity on March the 12th, which is World Kidney Day, for all of us to think about what you can do on that day, maybe around the 850, maybe like whatever, you know, that is a super interesting day um, for all of us. Yeah, just check the days that we do on that day. Um, and, you know, I think in high resource countries, we seem to not do the same thing thing is and if you see in low resource countries there's like marches and things like that and yes covid will delay like not make it as visible but maybe we have you know 850 people on zoom sue like an 850 person march for kidneys like did we sock it to kidney disease last year can we do that again yeah we're doing it again did you see my socks last year they were mice i got mice on yeah, so that's March March 11th this year is World Kidney Disease. So order your socks now because we need a socket to kidney disease. And I thought it was so fun. And it's like kind of, yeah, it makes everyone sort of human, you know, just like, hey, you know what? Just show your socks and socket to kidney disease. I, what I love about the World Kidney Disease is how they lean into world. Like this, it really is a worldwide community of people and we community kidney disease affects people all over the world in all different types of countries it really is that moment to really kind of remember that and i am also like matt going to recommend another podcast so since august i've been working with a team of uh, kidney educators on a podcast this is a uh, kind of a different type of podcast we are doing a 
a chapter-by-chapter recap of Burton Rose's classic clinical physiology of acid-base and electrolyte disorders. It's really, really fun. We got a great group of kidney educators and we released the first chapter. Uh, by the time this podcast out comes out, we will have the second chapter out. It's really uh, a lot of fun. It is a joyful recap of every chapter. Please get your copy of Burton Rose. Read along with us. You will enjoy it. It is uh, a pleasure to read his prose. Thank you.